Hey, I'm Eric Soderborg, and you're listening to the How in the Health podcast, the show where I go behind the scenes with today's top healthcare leaders to talk about what's really going on in healthcare and what you can do about it. Our guest today is Brenda Winters. She is the Vice President of Operations at Senior Benefits Insurance Services, and she is a type 1 diabetic, and we'll be discussing all things diabetes. All right, Brenda, thanks so much for doing this. I'm excited to have you on here to talk about diabetes. Thank you, Eric. It's great to be here. So we start off all these episodes with how did you get into healthcare? I kind of got thrown into the healthcare field after high school. I decided I was going to go to nursing school. And I did some pre-credits and applied to nursing school at Weber. And back in those days, they actually could deny you for your own medical history. And my medical history told them that they didn't want me being a nurse. And so they denied me entry into the nursing school. I actually worked for a lock supply company in my late teens, right into the age of 20, and decided that that really wasn't where I wanted to be. So I left and went to a temporary agency where I, I was actually placed with Intermountain Healthcare in a psychiatric clinic. And about a year later, or six months later, they actually hired me permanently. And I worked in psych for 18 years. It was a really good intro to the healthcare world. So it, w- it was a fun intro to be able to go into psych where every phone call was a little bit different. And I was talking with the team yesterday about some of the calls that I'd received talking with people with multiple personality disorders, and you never knew who you'd be talking to at that time. And it was a really great experience to be able to work in a place where you really had to care about your clients because a lot of those patients were very fragile and they could have just gotten out of the hospital after a suicide attempt or someone who was bipolar and just the, the slightest thing could set someone off if their medications weren't regulated. And so... It, it really taught me that helping people was something that I liked to do. And never in a clinical part of that, but just answering phones and talking about billing and, and collecting money could set someone off. And it was a, a really great way to learn how to work with people and deal with people and know that any way that you treated someone could affect their entire day, their entire week, their entire world, because you never knew how what you said could affect someone. Wow. Yeah, that's that's quite the start to healthcare. That's, yes, it was. <laughs> that's pretty cool. So take me through this. We're talking about diabetes, and I'm relatively ignorant. So when we're talking about people, is it with diabetes, who have diabetes, who suffer from diabetes, what's the right terminology to acknowledge somebody with diabetes? I think that it really depends on who you're speaking with. I've always liked to consider that I have diabetes, just like someone might have a cold or might have some other illness, because I don't ever want to be defined by my diabetes. Some people will say I'm a diabetic, which yes, I am a diabetic, but I feel like letting your diabetes identify you is a way of letting it control how you live. And I never, ever, ever want to be controlled by this chronic illness that I just happen to have ended up with. So I have diabetes is a great way to address that. Perfect. And take us through how you were diagnosed, which I understand your diagnosis was a little bit more common. Sure. So I really don't have a lot of memories of not having diabetes. I was actually seven when I was diagnosed. And I do remember little things, and it may be more my mom's memories that I remember than my own. But apparently, I I had a lot of energy as a younger child. And as we kind of hit that point before I was diagnosed, I was sleepy a lot. 
I was drinking a lot. In the summer when we were out of school, my dad used to travel for work throughout the state of Utah, and we would travel with him a lot. And there was a point that I remember where we'd get in the car, and it was, you know, just like every parent, make sure you empty your bladders before you get in the car. And we'd get a few blocks from our house, and I'd have to go again, and my dad would start getting angry because it was common. Every few miles, I would need to go again. And my dad would say, we're not stopping. We just did that. And I'd cry, and we'd stop. And that was pretty common for a few months. And my mom would take me to the pediatrician, and they got feedback like, she's vitamin deficient. Let's put her on some more vitamins, you know, more Flintstone vitamins, all that sugar and nothing good. Mm -hmm. And let's test her for hormones because she's starting to develop early and just things that didn't make a lot of sense. But my mom didn't know any better. My parents didn't know better. And so for months, we went through this. And then my mom had a friend who was a nurse and she was at my house and we were sitting in the kitchen and the nurse leaned over toward me and, and she said, she has diabetes. She smells like a fruit factory. Mm. So that was how it was identified to my mom. And my mom called the pediatrician and said, my nurse friend says, my daughter's a diabetic. Have you tested for that? And they had not. So at that point, we went back to the pediatrician. They did the, the urine test. And at that time, blood was a common test at the doctor's office, but it was kind of the first indicator if your urine test showed a lot of sugar, which mine did. And so I was in the hospital the next day and boom, Brenda's a diabetic and life is changing for everyone in our family. Wow. And then contrast that with how your sister's is a little bit different. She was a little bit older. Yeah. So my sister and I are both type one diabetics, but I was diagnosed as a child. My sister was 38 years old when she was diagnosed with type one diabetes. She had a lot of the same symptoms, but for some reason, it never occurred to her that she was a diabetic because she's almost five years younger than I and didn't really know what to look for. And her doctors kept misdiagnosing her. And I got a call from my mom one day saying, hey, so all that stuff that's been going on with your sister, she's a diabetic. Mm -hmm. So at, you know, at that time, I called my sister and talked through her symptoms. And I said, you're not type 2, you're type 1. Make sure that they put you on insulin, not oral medication. Mm -hmm. Because based on the symptoms that she was having and the, the level of her sugar, it was very clear that she was no longer producing enough insulin to put through. And typically, when someone thinks of being a, a diagnosed with diabetes as an older adult, they think of it used to be juvenile diabetes or adult onset diabetes. And they would think type 1 for children and type 2 for adults. And research studies have shown through the years that that's not accurate, that type 1 can come at any time. And the gene is always there. It just manifests in different timing. So there may be something in your life that sets that off, and all of a sudden, you're in your 30s and diagnosed with what used to be juvenile diabetes. Wow. There are a lot of questions I have now. So <laughs> you talk about some of the symptoms. What are symptoms of diabetes? The most common ones will be urinating very frequently. And unlike a UTI or a kidney, there's no pain. So if you're urinating frequently and not having pain, then very possibly it's a symptom that you would consider. Also, very, very, very frequent drinking. So I was thirsty all the time. I used to drink the, the big mason jar glasses of ice water, and I would go through several of those in an hour and drink nonstop. And typically, when diabetes is, is manifesting, the liquid is going to go right through you. It's not going to process. It's not going to keep you hydrated. So dehydration is one of the big things with diabetes because your fluids aren't staying in. They're just being washed right through your kidneys and not doing what they're supposed to do for your body. 
Mm. Are there any energy levels that you mentioned now as a kid, you were pretty active and energetic and then it kind of hit a... Yeah. So I remember, and, and I do distinctly remember, I had a friend come over and ring the doorbell and, and I answered the door and she said, let's go play. And I said, I can't, I'm grounded. And so, because I think that at, at that age, I felt like how dumb would that be to tell my friend I'm too tired to come and play? I was embarrassed to tell her that. Mm. And I got in trouble for lying and telling my friend I was grounded because my mom heard me at the door. And I remember crying and saying, I'm too tired, I don't want to play. And so <laughs> that was another one of those things that really brought to my mom's attention, something is not right. Mm. So you have type 1 diabetes. What's the difference between type 1 and type 2? Type 1 diabetes is actually an autoimmune disorder. So it's your own body attacking itself. And so type 1 diabetes is not something that you can treat with diet or exercise or weight loss. I mean, you, you do treat it with, but that's not going to be what's going to stabilize your sugars like in type 2. Type 1 diabetes, the beta cells in your pancreas just shut down. They don't produce insulin or they don't produce sufficient insulin for your body to absorb the sugar that should be in your cells instead of in your blood. So you get all of the sugar in your blood instead of absorbing to help your body think straight and talk straight and do the things that you need to do to function. Okay, so type 1, your sugar levels in the blood are too high because yes. the ins your body's not producing the insulin to deal with it. So right. insulin is the treatment for type 1 diabetes. Right, okay. and no other treatment. Okay, and then type 2 can be a little bit more influenced by your lifestyle. Yes, is that right? yes. so type 2 typically, and it's not really the case because there are so many factors that are involved but with type 2 diabetes, you would typically think of it as being someone who has put on more weight than their body can really sustain the insulin, and they need more of something to make their body work better to produce the right amount of insulin. So their pancreas, in most cases, does still work, but something has to happen to encourage it to produce that insulin. And so weight is often a factor that causes the pancreas to not produce enough insulin. But there are also genetic factors. There are also all kinds of things with your body that will make it not function like it needs to. I often think that the body is so amazing when everything works perfectly that it's just funny the things that can go wrong and how we can still use medical technology to treat them so well. But with type 2 diabetes, it, it is controllable and never curable. Once you're diagnosed with diabetes, you don't have a cure, but you do have a treatment and a management, and you can treat it to the point that it's not really manifesting in your body so much anymore. But you have to still watch what you're doing with type 2 because you can still have those symptoms if things change in your weight or your lifestyle, and your body may decide to not produce enough insulin or your body needs more still to function properly. And what about pre-diabetes? So when doctors are doing just your preventive testing and they, they will do an A1C or they may check your blood sugar right at that moment with the standard test, and if they see that your sugar is outside of what they consider a normal range, and doctors have different opinions about normal range. When I was a kid, they would say 80 to 120 is the ideal range for somebody who's a non-diabetic. And I have a friend who's a type 2 diabetic who said that as long as he was lower than 200, then he was fine. And to me, I think, I don't ever want to be 200. That's way too high. So the numbers that they're looking for may vary from doctor to doctor, but there are clinical guidelines for where they're going to say you are pre-diabetic, you need to change your diet, maybe lose some weight so that you don't have to take medications. And when you use those numbers like 80 to 120 or under 200, that's going to be a measurement of the concentration of the sugar per volume of blood, correct? Yes, right? right. Okay, and what are some of the symptoms if it goes untreated? 
So without insulin, a lot of long-term effects, but also short-term effects can occur. When the body needs insulin, one of the things that happens is with the autoimmune, again, it starts to attack itself. And the things that are going to be affected are kidneys. You can have kidney failure. You can be in pre-renal disease. For women especially, it can affect our reproductive systems. Mm -hmm. So a lot of doctors will watch you through the years, and, and as your kidneys and other parts of your body are affected, they will say you shouldn't get pregnant or getting pregnant is not a good idea for you because it will wear too much on the kidneys or too much on the body just in general. Without proper insulin, nerve damage can occur for a diabetic. You can have some cognitive issues as well because the body really needs a very balanced measure of sugar and insulin to function properly. So too much insulin, not enough insulin, either of those is going to cause different parts of your body to not function like they should. And then the sugar levels on top of insulin, you have to make sure that you're eating at the right times or eating the right foods to get your sugar levels up. Otherwise you could fall into these symptoms. And then right. diabetic shock. Take us through what is diabetic shock. So don't really think of the word shock as really being the reaction that you're going to have. Really the start of that is what would be referred to as a hypoglycemic reaction, so low sugar reaction. And you witnessed that yesterday or the day before we were in a meeting and my brain just stops working. I can't think properly. I can't vocalize properly. And, and as people see that, the first thing that you would want them to do is to ingest some sugar. You're going to want to drink some juice, have some candy, have something that's fast acting is always better, which is why we typically have a, a fridge full of juice boxes so that you can have a fast acting sugar to bring the levels up to the point that they should. Now, if someone is passed out, you're not going to have them take something orally because that's not a good idea. You don't <laughs> want them to choke besides being so low they're passed out. So typically you'd either call 911. If you live with a diabetic, you will find the red emergency kit glucagon in their fridge, I'm sure. And the glucagon is actually an injectable that is basically just straight sugar. And it's going to be given IM intramuscularly so that it reacts very quickly with the body. And, and they'll come around fairly soon. But you may still call 911 if you don't have a lot of experience with it. In my family, we've had lots of 911 calls, but we've also had family members who are now familiar with my own reactions and responses and how to manage those and using glucagon. And so but if you're familiar, you'll work very well with that and be able to help them to come back to a normal level. Perfect. Let's talk insulin for a minute because sure. it seems to be in the news all the time. Yes. The history of in insulin, it's pretty famous at this point where the person who developed insulin sold it to the university for a dollar because he didn't feel like doctors should profit off of it. And now insulin tripled in price a couple of years ago. And it's kind of the poster child for price gouging in drugs. Yes. But other things have come out. So are there different types of insulin that you can take, or is it all the same? Does it just depend on the company? Take us through somebody with diabetes making a decision around insulin. Sure. So doctors are going to make those decisions, but there are certain ways that they're going to look at what they're going to give you. The first way that they typically will prescribe insulin is going to be a long-acting insulin which will last depending on what they prescribe. The one that I was on when I was a child was about a 12-hour time range for having it work within your body. And so you would inject that twice a day, and that would carry you through the 24-hour time frame. Now there, there are some long-acting ones that are 24-hour drugs, and so you'll take those once a day. And then you have your short-acting that is really for high sugars that you would need to correct and for intake of carbs carb counting is really big with diabetics now. When I was a kid, it wasn't carbs. It was what they called counts. 
and you would have a count of fruit or a count of vegetable. And so it's changed some since I was diagnosed, but it is still all about what you're taking in and how your insulin is going to cover that. Why is it so expensive and is there a generic version of insulin or what are we looking at when we see these prices going up? It's totally my opinion, but my opinion is that through the years, insulin has changed tremendously. I I think back to the days um, and kind of the graduation of insulin um, through my years and it started out where we were using a beef insulin. So it was basically the insulin taken from the pancreas of cows and I don't know what they did with it to process it, (laughs) but that's what they did. And then they figured out through the years that our pancreas has functioned more like the pancreas of a pig. So they started doing pork insulin. So of course you've got the research and development of all of that and that all feeds into the cost obviously like all medications. So then we had pork insulin and then we had a pork synthetic insulin. So it was a little closer to what our bodies created, but not quite all there. And now most of the insulins that are prescribed now are all completely synthetic. Whatever it is that they've done in the laboratories, they've been able to really model the human pancreas to try to make it as close as possible. And so the R&D is definitely expensive and it takes years to recover that. Insulin in my lifetime has never been cheap. Thank God for insurance because if we didn't have it, it would be really, really difficult. And there are many diabetics out there who don't have a good insurance or insurance that's sufficient to accommodate their financial needs so they can get what they need. But the R&D makes it really hard. And as far as generics go, Walmart actually created their Rely On brand. I think it's been about two years since it came out. And one is a long-acting that is similar to the insulin Lantus, which has been around for a while. And the other is similar to a shorter-acting insulin but not really, really quick acting. So similar to something that would be referred to as regular. And if you see graphs out there, you can look them up about the timing of how different insulins work. It's all about when they start to hit the body and start to really work in the body to when they end. So they're not something that maybe a pump wearing diabetic would use because they're not quick enough. But for injections, the Walmart brand is probably great if doctors are willing to prescribe it. Now you said a couple of things again that prompt more questions for me. So (laughs) it's not just the insulin that we're talking about because you talked about an injection, you've talked about a pump, and then we've got test strips, we've got all kinds of supplies that go along with insulin. So what supplies does somebody with diabetes need to have with them almost at all times, I would think, uh, to make sure they're getting what they need inside of them? Yeah, so that's going to vary from diabetic to diabetic. But the one thing, if you had 20 diabetics in a room and and you asked what they all had in common that they were carrying in one way or another, probably their glucometer, their meter to test their sugar would be the one thing that they would all have with them. Some diabetics, and, and I'm talking type 1 and type 2, they'd all have their glucometer if they were, air quote, good diabetics. <laughs> But we don't all use the same supplies. Some of us might use a a syringe that has just one cc and you can have very, very small doses of insulin in that one cc syringe. Or you might have someone who has very large doses of insulin and they have a three cc syringe. Some use um, injectable devices, so they dial in their dose, and it gives the injection just at the push of a button. Is that the one that looks kind of like a pen? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. In fact, they call them pens. Yes. Yeah, insulin pens. So there are all of those who, insulin-dependent diabetics, type 1 and type 2, have different methods of injecting their insulin. I have worn a pump for the last 29 years, and so I'm attached to tubing always, except when I'm changing out my tubing, and I 
dial in what I'm eating. So how many carbs I'm taking in and I get the insulin for that. And hopefully I'm getting a pretty good dosage for what I'm doing. There are days like, like that yesterday when it's too much insulin compared to what I've taken in and then you'll see the low reaction. And is the continuous glucose monitors you brought up the other day, is that the same thing as a pump or are they different? They are different. So the pump is a delivery method for the insulin and the continuous glucose monitor referred to as CGM is a device that actually will send your readings um, of your glucose levels to a different device depending on which one you have. So some go to your smartphones, some feed to an insulin pump if you wear one. And some, you have to actually look at the device to see what it is that it has kind of a scanner to see what your sugar is. But it's a much simpler way to see what your blood sugars are. But certain ones, they sit in a different level of tissue than when you test your sugar. So you have your subdural layer of skin, and then you have the layer that's beneath it. And with a CGM, they sit beneath the subdural level. So they test a little bit differently than you would when you actually poke your finger and put your finger, your blood on a stick. But they're great for keeping consistency and for seeing the trends in your sugars. That's awesome. Take us through kind of a day in the life with somebody who has diabetes. We've talked a little bit about diet. Are there things that you can or can't eat or drink or things you should avoid? So I think that that question is a tough one to answer because the answer is yes, there are things that you should avoid or would probably do better to avoid. I am not your prized diabetic when it comes to that. For many, many, many years, I really took in very little anything that had sugar. As a child, you know, they just said, you avoid those things, you don't get to eat them. And when I got my first pump, I was in the hospital and the training nurse came in and said, with this giant piece of fudge that looked like a coma right there. But she said, do you want this fudge? And I said, no, because I don't want that fudge. But someone else said yes, and she said, well, you can eat this fudge, but you have to count for it, and you have to count it into your calorie counts and your carb counts for the day. And it was eye-opening to me and a huge life changer to go from being a child diabetic who lived in a family who loved sugar and, and I could not partake of those things to being somebody who could eat whatever I wanted. I just had to still account for those things and know that it was going to affect my sugars. And so you're very, very good diabetics are going to eat very little sugar and really manage well so that they'll have consistent numbers and straight lines is what we call it. Mm -hmm. So you're not going up too much or not going down too much. But these days, a pump-wearing diabetic can really live a very normal life. And especially children and teens. When I was a child, I was the abnormal kid, the, the odd one out, and I didn't like that very much, especially in my teen years. I couldn't be like the other kids. And now the kids can live a normal life and not seem different at all. Yeah, based off what you're saying, I have three young kids, and I can't imagine telling them no <laughs> no candy, no cookies, no ice cream. I mean, that's yeah, well, and imagine yeah. on Halloween when you go trick-or-treating yeah. and you come home and give your mom your candy because you don't get to eat it. <laughs> I think we might enjoy that, actually, <laughs> taking the candy. So what about traveling? I mean, when we talk about these devices that you have hooked up to you or even vials of insulin, does travel become problematic? Yeah, it depends on the travel, really. When we car travel, we make sure that our... So my husband is also a a type 1 diabetic. So when I see we, it's because everything we do is the two of us calculating for that. But when we car travel, we just make sure that our medical bags are somewhere that's not going to get too hot or too cold because your insulin can't get too hot or too cold. If we're flying, there are a couple of things that we have to do differently because of the devices that we wear. 
we cannot go through, and, and many diabetics who wear pumps can't go through anything that's magnetic or the metal detectors because of everything we've got connected. So we get hand padded everywhere we go. We show up very early to plan for that. If we're traveling with somebody who never gets to the airport on time or early, we have to make sure and drag them out the door. We traveled with my mom recently, so. <laughs> There's another symptom, the, the mental stress of yeah. getting somewhere on yes, time. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and stress affects the sugars as well. Yeah. But we've gotten very used to that. We traveled to Europe a few years back, and that was a little bit challenging. But we researched well ahead. We had to get notes from our doctors saying what we were traveling with. We were in places where we didn't speak the primary language, and sometimes it was challenging in, the, in one of the airports in France, we ended up being really grilled for quite a while. Fortunately, we were very early for our next plane, but it was interesting to see how confused they were by what they were looking at and how they didn't understand the technology because the technology is international. Mm. And especially in France, I wouldn't think it would come as a surprise to see somebody wearing a pump or a, a CGM but it was a challenge and we know we'll get those. So we just, we deal as we need to. That's a good point. So there isn't like a card or a bracelet or something that you can wear to the airports that shows you have diabetes? Yeah, there are all kinds. You've got your med alerts and there's a card that will say, I wear a pump or I'm a diabetic. But the problem with those is that they don't allow you through airport security just because you have that card. <laughs> yeah, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> you get to go through the pat downs and the questions and when we had an English letter from a physician and a, a French mm. person who doesn't speak medical terms in, in English, it was hard to translate per, yeah. pro properly, but we were able to make it work. When we talk about injectables with diabetes and even the pumps, is that uncomfortable? Does it hurt? Do you just get used to it? What does that feel like? I think that it's not so much uncomfortable and it, and it mostly doesn't hurt. Every once in a while, I might hit a spot that doesn't feel so great. But the thing that's the hardest to get used to for any new pump wearer, so for any new pump wearer who's listening, pay attention. <laughs> years and years and years ago, I was wrapping myself in tubing nonstop through the night. I would turn a lot. I would wrap my tubing around me, and it would wake me up because I'm tied up in tubing. Mm. And through the years, you get used to it. And I know I still move a lot when I sleep, but it, it's second nature to pick up my pump and move it with me. So I, I don't get wrapped up anymore. Mm. I think that, and then just the inconvenience of having something attached to you, it's definitely not fun. I would much rather not have it, but I will tell you what, it's a life changer. So I think that when you're new to a pump, it's not something that's pleasant, mm -hmm. but for me, it's just second nature. You get used to it and you do what you have to to survive and survive in a good way. Yeah, you bring up such good points because it's stuff I wouldn't even think of right? when you're <laughs> sleeping or I guess even the clothes that you would decide to wear yes. and, and, and the activities that you could participate in. So yeah. that's, that's amazing. What are some myths about diabetes that you hear often that you can clear up for us? I think one of the funny ones, as I think about my childhood and even after I'd been diagnosed, my grandma would watch some of the kids eating lots of sugar and she'd say, you're going to get sugar diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> that was grandma. And that still, I think, is kind of a myth. I don't know if in the back of their mind, sometimes people believe that if my children eat too much sugar, they might end up diabetics, which is absolutely not true. If you have type 2 in your family, then yes, as they get older, they may develop type 2. But type 1 is never going to come from eating too much sugar. It is always going to be an autoimmune disorder that's going to develop from whatever's happening with your beta cells at the time. 
But there are lots of myths out there about curing your diabetes, and there are experts everywhere. So anytime someone knows that I'm a diabetic and they don't know me well, they may tell me about the things that will cure it, like if you eat this cinnamon this many times a day and mix it with vinegar. And there are some crazy, crazy myths out there about the things that you should intake to cure your diabetes. Wow. Yeah, don't eat spoonfuls of cinnamon and vinegar. (laughs) Sounds awful. It does. All right, we are in Medicare. We work a lot with Medicare. We do. So can you take us through going on to Medicare from a group plan if you have diabetes? What should you be looking at and be aware of? When I speak with someone who has diabetes and they are going on to Medicare, I go through a series of questions with that that person. And the first question for me is always going to be, are you type 1 or type 2? Because that tells me which direction I need to go. If they're type 1, I know they're insulin dependent. So my next question is going to be, do you wear a pump or do you inject? And if they're type 2, I'm going to ask, do you use insulin or oral medications? And so I go through a series of questions that direct me to know how to advise them. Someone who's a type 1 diabetic and wears an insulin pump can save a tremendous amount of money just by the choices that they make. And so we always want to walk them toward that right choice and make sure that they understand that certain things that you're doing, your supplies and your insulin and other things can be billed through your medical benefit, not your prescription benefit. If you are not a pump-wearing diabetic, whether you're type 1 or you're type 2, and you're insulin dependent, you will have all of your insulin and supplies going through your prescription benefit. So your syringes, your insulin, your strips. So being a type 1 diabetic where Medicare is concerned is beneficial, or being a type 2 diabetic who's insulin dependent and maybe has a pump, it can be a lot less expensive. But we always want to advise in a way that's going to be the right thing, not just for their medical well-being, but also for their finances, because diabetes is a very expensive disease to have. Yeah. And especially in Medicare, you have Medicare Advantage options, you have Medicare Supplement options, and then to your point of the prescription side of things as well is your Part D plan. So I guess their situation is highly dependent based on what they have going on. Right. The answers to the questions when I'm asking them are really going to be helping to, to guide them in the right direction so that they aren't spending the out-of-pocket maximum on their supplies or you know, we're trying to figure out the best way for them financially because we know that this is not going away. It's a lifelong issue for them. Yeah. So you've been in healthcare quite a while. That's where you've built your career. And outside of a stable job and financial well-being, what do you get out of working in healthcare? Every place that I have worked in the healthcare industry, so besides in psych, I worked in cardiac and then in, in the sales and Medicare industry. And what I find is that Every time that I talk to someone who I have helped, you know how much they appreciate it because of the way they talk with you and the way that they thank you. And I can always go home feeling like I've done the right thing and I helped one person or five people today. And I, I don't ever go home feeling like like I need to kind of shower to get the dirt off of me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I love helping people and I love that I know that everything that I've done for them is something that's going to be beneficial for them. Nice. What is a question that I have not asked that I should have? Oh, gosh, there are so many questions. I think that one of the things that maybe we didn't cover was the who gets diabetes kind of thing. And obviously, there are some factors that may be involved. They've created genetic testing even for embryos and, and fetuses to see if they have the gene that means they could be a type 1 diabetic. 
And if they have that gene, that doesn't mean that when they come out of the womb that they all of a sudden are diabetics, but they do know that they are predisposed to being a type 1 diabetic. We can't really predict who the type 1 diabetics are going to be, but medical technology has made it a lot easier to prepare way in advance. Mm -hmm. For type 2 diabetics, they do actually have some trends. You do see it in families. So if your parents are type 2 diabetics, you may find that you or your children could be type 2 diabetics. And you may see a family history with that. There's also um, been some research that shows that the black community um, has a higher risk for type 2 diabetes than the non-black community. I don't know what the reason is. It's not really going to be based on where you live, but it could be lifestyle related. If you're not able to eat very healthy, you may find that you're putting on the weight that comes from less healthy eating, and Mm. that could be a factor there. And of course, lifestyle for type two, for those of us who sit around a lot more than those like you who are doing heavy sports every week, (laughs) every night. You may find that lifestyle contributes a great deal because the more couch potatoing that we do through the years, the more type 2 diabetes has become common. All right. So if you could have one other leader in healthcare on this podcast and ask that person questions, who would you want to have on here? Dana Clark, MD. He is probably an 80-year-old endocrinologist now. He might even be a little bit older. I don't know. He graduated from medical school in 1955. He is an endocrinologist who is the smartest endocrinologist I've ever, ever met in my life. And he was really a life-changing physician for me when he was my physician. And there were so many things. We would just, we would have an appointment and we'd deal with my diabetes for a few minutes. And then we would just chat about all things diabetes and research and things that were just fascinating. He's, he's brilliant. I, I don't know where he is now, but he's brilliant. We'll try and track him down. We should do that. <laughs> If people are interested in learning about diabetes, where do you go to learn more about it? So for me, I have a great team of endocrinologists and trainers. So if I have a specific question for myself, I would definitely go to my physician. I will tell anyone who is new to diabetes or is having a struggle with managing their sugars that primary care physicians are sometimes not the best source for treatment Everybody knows a little bit, so your primary care knows a little bit, but I think that you really need a specialist. You wouldn't go to your primary care to treat your cancer. You shouldn't go to your primary care to treat your diabetes. So an endocrinologist is really going to be your best bet for getting the right treatment. If you're looking for general questions, you know, why does this happen? The internet's a a nice place to go, but remember that you can find anything on the internet, including a quote by Abraham Lincoln where he said, don't believe everything you read on the internet. (laughs) So you just have to be careful. Take it all with a grain of salt. Yeah. Well, this has been enlightening for me, and I appreciate you taking the time to walk us through this. And I know just based off of the people that I've talked to here and the people that you help that you're an invaluable resource, especially as people head into Medicare and have those decisions to make. So again, thank you, and I appreciate you, and we'll be seeing you around even more. Thanks, Eric. Hey, as we wrap up this episode, we just wanted to let you know that we record these live, so sometimes we misspeak or say things that we didn't mean to. We also run each episode by some other outside experts just to make sure that we got all of our facts straight. So in the show description, you'll find a link to some more information around the topics that we discussed. So be sure to check that out. And if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear others like it, be sure to subscribe. Again, thanks for listening.